The title of my message this morning is Made in the Image of God. And that's an important subject because there's so much wonderful truth bound in just that topic. We are made in the image of God. It's a truth that speaks right to the heart of some of the biggest struggles and problems that we and those around us in the world face today. Struggles with identity, sexuality, relationship, and struggles with our very purpose of being. I'm going to do my best to navigate us through some of what the Bible has to say about these things by spending some time in Genesis. Excuse me. But before we get stuck into the text, I want to lay a bit of a foundation about the circumstances of God's creation of mankind. I want to give you a little bit of a context for creation. So Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning... God. So the first verse in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible begins with God. And not only does it begin with God, it it assumes his previous existence. It doesn't introduce him and say this is where God came from. It just says in the beginning God. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And it seems obvious to say, but it's worth thinking about, before there was anything else, there was everlasting God. So if we could see back before the creation of man, or the earth, or the universe, if we could see back into eternity past, we would see everlasting God. But what sort of God would we see? Would we see a God that was moping around, feeling lonely and empty and nothingness? Or would we see a God that was in need of something outside of himself in order to feel satisfied? Is that the sort of God we would see? Well, the answer is no to both those things. That's not the God that's presented to us In the scriptures, it's not the creator God of the Bible. Acts 17, 24 to 25 says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. If we could catch a glimpse of eternity past, we would see a God that doesn't need anyone or anything else for his existence or to make him satisfied. We would see a God that is totally independent, fully satisfied and content within himself. A God that has eternally existed as Trinity, enjoying the fullness of relationship and community between Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, eternally giving love and honor and glory to one another in perfect unity, fully satisfied in his own existence, doesn't need anything. So the question becomes then, why on earth did God make man? 
then? To rephrase the question in more personal terms, if God doesn't need me, then does my life have any meaning in it at all? What's the point of it? Does God... What's what's the value of my life? I want to tell you this. The creator of the universe chose to make you in an act of complete and perfect free will. Think about that. There was no pressure acting on God to do anything, and yet he still chose to make each and every one of you. Not because he needed you, but because he decided that you should be significant, meaningful, and valuable to him. Do you know that? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You may have heard that phrase before. God made mankind so we could give him glory, and that means praise and worship and honor in every aspect of our lives. And in doing so, we can enjoy God. We can enjoy a relationship with him. We can enjoy his grace in our lives and his provision and his guidance and his protection. And incredibly, we can enjoy his love poured out on us in unending measure. If you want to know what the meaning of life is, this is it. Your primary purpose the very thing that you were created for, the very reason you were put on earth, is to give glory to God and to enjoy Him forever. That's incredibly special. But the most incredible part is that as we enjoy God and give Him that glory that He so rightfully deserves, do you know that we bring joy to Him? He delights in us. Zephaniah 3 says that God rejoices over you with gladness and sings over you. Do you know that? Can you believe that? You bring joy to the heart of our almighty, three-in-one, eternal creator God, so much so that he sings over you. How do you feel now? Summarizing this truth, the theologian Wayne Grudem says this, God does not need us for anything, yet it is the amazing fact of our existence that he chooses to delight in us and allows us to bring joy to his heart. This is the basis for personal significance in the lives of all God's people. To be significant to God is to be significant in the most ultimate sense no greater personal significance can be imagined. In other words, if you mean something to God, you can't mean more than that. Be encouraged. I don't know how much value you think you have, but I am telling you, as far as God is concerned, you're priceless. And if you don't believe me, wait till the end of the message and then I'll ask you again. Let's take a look at our text. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 26 to 31. 
Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. We are made in the image of God. And I want to talk to you about our dignity, our value, and our worth that comes just from that fact. So in that passage we've just read, this is the sixth day of God's creation activity. It's the last and final day that God is said to be creating because on the seventh day he rested from all the work that he'd done. But here's the thing, I don't want you to think that this was the last but not least kind of deal. As if God said, oops, I've been creating for you know, five or six days, I better put some people on the earth. The creation narrative takes us on a journey of God's creation work. And it is building and preparing the world for humanity. That's what God's doing. And mankind is God's final creation act. Because in God's eyes, we are his crowning achievement. We are the climax of this creation story. So much so that God didn't just call mankind into being as he'd done with the light or the sun or the moon or the fish or the birds. Instead, we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, and the man became a living creature. We're different than everything else in creation. God reached down and got his hands dirty for us. The image reminds us of like a potter working and shaping some clay into the form that he has in mind. Back in Genesis 1, there is some really cool language that I want us to look at in verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. That's a plural, that's more than one. And that's carried over from the Hebrew because us and our seems to refer to more than one person. And this is the first hint of the Trinity in Scripture. Right here in Genesis, at the beginning of all things, the eternal Father, Son, and Spirit decide together in perfect unity to create not just the world and all the creatures in it, but a race of beings that are more like God than anything else in all of that creation. Once again, we see the uniqueness and the significance of humanity. 
No other creature that God has made is ever described as being made in the image of God. Mankind is utterly set apart from the rest of the natural world, and we alone have the honor of being like God. What this means in practical terms is that regardless of gender or race, nationality, appearance, ability, age, sexuality, color, whatever other way you want to divide human beings up, regardless of those things, every human being has an innate, that means an inbuilt, dignity, value, and worth that is God-given and is therefore undeniable and unarguable. In fact, all the evil things that man does against man has a denial or a willful ignorance of this truth at its very core. The only way I can cause you harm is if I see you as less than me. Yet because God has created us as human beings to be in his image, you're never less than me. Never. Do you understand that God has set you apart from the rest of his creation to be uniquely like him? Do you know that? Do you know that that is just as true for your friend, for your neighbor, for your family member, and it's just as true of your enemy? They are all created uniquely in the image of God. Shouldn't that truth shape our every thought, our every action and interaction with other human beings? Shouldn't that change how we see and think of one another? Because if God finds dignity, value and worth in every person, then shouldn't we? I want to ask you this morning, I want to challenge you. How are you doing with that? Do you understand who you are and then by extension do you understand who everyone else is? The next thing I want to talk about is this image and likeness language. What does it mean to be made in the image and the likeness of God? Well, primarily it means that we reflect God's nature and character to one another and back to God himself. In a moment, we're going to look at three ways that we are in the image or likeness of God. But first, (laughs) I do want to be clear in case we get a little bit above our station. Although God invests significance, value, dignity, and worth in us and has set us apart from the rest of creation to bear his image, we ourselves are not gods. After all, he is the eternal creator and we are his creation, the work of his hands, the fruit of his labor. We are the clay and he is the potter. He relies on no one and nothing for his existence or his satisfaction, whereas we rely entirely on his ongoing decision that we should continue to exist. Do you ever think about that? Sometimes I do lie awake thinking about that. Do you know the reason that there's breath in your lungs right now is because God said so? The reason that the atoms in this building are still holding together is because God said so. Do you ever think about that? That's how big God is. That's how little you are. That's incredible. And yet, he finds value, dignity, and worth in you. We are utterly reliant on God for our life 
our breath, our everything. And ultimately, it's only in proper relationship with God that we truly find our satisfaction. So that was the warning. Let's not get above our station. Let's not get too big for our boots. That said, we do bear the image and the likeness of God. Now, the problem with trying to think about what that means is that God is infinitely complex. And his nature and character are not, are not boxed in by our understanding. We can't easily define God. So theologians throughout history have come up with different schemes and methods to define what it means to bear the image of God. Some think that we reflect God in our awareness of our spiritual existence outside of the physical world. And we know that, right? As Christians, we believe that God has given us a soul or a spirit and that it's not physical or material. And in that way, we do reflect God because God himself is spirit. Some people think that it's our intellect, our intelligence, our creativity and our self-awareness that sets us apart. The truth is no scheme or definition can truly capture the fullness of God's goodness and nature and character. And with that in mind, it makes sense that we can't clearly define every way that we reflect God either. The best thing we can do is look at some of those ways and rejoice and give thanks to him for them. And really that ought to lead us to a place of worship and wonder and awe. But with that in mind, let's look at these three ways that I think we bear the image of God. Again, it's not an exhaustive list, but this is the starting point, and these are helpful ways. So we're like God in that we represent God. We rule like God, and we relate like God. And I'm going to unpack those as we go. So first, we represent God. So the words image and likeness that we find in verse 26 and 27 are different words in the Hebrew, and they have slightly different definitions. The word image, or salem, emphasizes the way that something, often a lesser thing, represents a greater thing. So let me put that in context for you. In ancient times, kings would put statues or images of themselves throughout their kingdom. And that would be to show the extent or the boundaries of their authority. You'd put your, your statue as far as your kingdom uh, extends so that people know who come into it, whoop, this is that king. As people look at the statue and they see the image of the king, they're reminded who's in charge. Who has the power? Who has the authority and the dominion over that land? Even when they can't see the king himself. There is no question about who's in charge. I want you to know the same is true of us. When we as human beings look at one another, we're meant to see the image, the lesser thing, and be reminded of the greater one, God Almighty. The one who rules and reigns not only over the heavens and the earth, but over each of us as individuals. And part of what that means in bearing the image of God is that he has stamped his likeness on us. And therefore he's claiming authority and dominion over our own bodies. 
He's staking a claim on our existence as a whole. Have you ever thought about that? The fact that you reflect something of God means that he is saying, this body is mine. It's his. Our bodies are not our own. We're stewards, if anything. God has the rightful claim over what he has made. Another part of what it means to bear the image of God is tied up with God's blessing and command in verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is known as the creation mandate. God instructs the man and woman to have children that also bear the image of God and to spread out across the face of the whole earth so that God's image will literally be seen and it will reflect the reality of his rule and reign and the extent of his authority, which encompasses the whole of creation. Do you see how that works? We're like little representations of God spread throughout the world so that it's in no question who's in charge at every place. In a complementary way, the word likeness or demurt emphasizes the similarity of one thing to another. In this case, it emphasizes the fact that we are like God in all the ways we just talked about. Intellect, creativity, self-awareness, moral judgment, and all the ways that we don't have time to look at right now. But what a wonderful privilege it is that just like a self-portrait captures and displays something of the character and creativity of the artist, so we as human beings capture and display a glimpse of the majesty and the glory and the wonder of our creator God to one another. We're like living signposts that point to the character and nature of the one true God and his rule and reign over us as individuals and over creation as a whole. So that was point one, we represent God. Point two, we rule like God. Again, if we look at God's instructions to Adam and Eve in verse 28, we we read, we're to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We've been given dominion or authority over God's creation so that we can rule like God, we can rule for God, and we can rule with God, not as owners, but as stewards of his creation. Just as God formed and filled the world and brought structure and order, that's what we are called to do. We're called to form, we're called to fill, we're called to bring order out of chaos. And we're called to take his image into the world. Genesis 2, 19 to 20 says, Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Adam's naming of the animals and cataloging of them reflects a little bit of God's earlier work in naming the whole of creation. God called the light, uh, uh, 
day and called the darkness night. He called the expanse above the waters the heavens, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. He's bringing order out of chaos, forming and filling. And Adam's doing a similar thing when God brings the animals to him. He says, that's a lion. That weird thing is a giraffe. That looks like a horse, but I'm calling it a zebra. That's what Adam's doing. And just as Adam and Eve were given authority to rule and work and look after the Garden of Eden and then extend that rule into the rest of the earth, so we are called to extend God's rule across the face of the earth. Now, I want to tell you the primary way that we get to do that as Christians is to share the gospel with people, to see other people invited to meet Jesus, encounter him, and be changed forever by his presence in their lives. Because I want to tell you this, every person who's added into the kingdom of God extends the rule and reign of God on the earth. But another way we can do this is through diligently managing resources that God's given us in creation. Not as owners, but as stewards. Point number three, we relate like God. Remember earlier when we looked at a context of creation, we saw that our creator God has eternally existed in the perfect community of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Eternally giving love and honor and glory to one another in perfect relationship. It follows then as beings created to be like God, we would also be designed to exist within community and within relationship. So the next thing I want to look at is how we relate to God. We relate like God in community. In Genesis 2.18, God declares that every human heart declares what every human heart knows to be true. It is not good that man should be alone. But God doesn't leave Adam there. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. And after God decides that none of the animals are a fit helper, that is, none of the animals are equal or complementary to Adam, we read in verse 21 to 23, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God knew it wasn't good for Adam to be alone because he'd made him to function best in community and relationship. He also knew that there was no other creature that would be fit for him, but now Adam knew that as well. So God took this rib from Adam and he made Eve. In other words... God made Eve as Adam's equal, made of the same stuff, and God was directly acting in his creation once again, getting his hands dirty once more. We need to pay close attention to Adam's reaction when he wakes up, because his first words are not, ooh, a lady. There's nothing sexual about Adam's initial reaction to God's presentation of Eve or about that weird voice I just did. 
Instead, we hear Adam's joyful cry, at last, he says, after seeing all the animals paraded before him, at last, this is bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This phrase is used elsewhere in the Bible to talk about kinship and family. Adam knows this is my equal, this is my other, this is the person I can relate to. Adam's overjoyed because he recognizes these things. This is someone he can have relationship with. And in this moment, we see the reality of the truth that people are created to be in community with other people. That is massive because the primary connection between human beings is not reproduction or sexuality or gender, it is community, it is family. This is another way that we are made in the image of God. We're made to relate like God in community. Please hear this, church, because we live in a society that is obsessed with sexuality and with gender and with identity. Whether it's causing single people to feel isolated and alone or convincing people that the only way they can ever truly be happy is if they are in a sexual relationship. Or maybe it's forcing people to build an identity based on their gender or sexual orientation. Whatever it is, the message is the same. The primary way society says that we connect with others is through our sexuality. That is not true. It's utterly false and it's hugely damaging. We have to continue as brothers and sisters in Christ to live in line with God's word but to be a community of people that welcomes others into relationship with us. No matter if they're single, married, divorced, straight, gay, or transgender. Because we know that the primary way we are going to connect with others is not based on our sexuality, but on the fact that we are all made in the image of God. As followers of Jesus, this is one of our greatest evangelistic tools. We get to display the image of God and the likeness of God to others through relationship, through lovingly journeying with them, inviting them to meet Jesus, and on that basis, sharing the truth in love with them. Now that said, I want to be clear that although I don't think Adam's initial reaction to Eve is sexual, God quickly establishes some creation boundaries based not only on what Adam and Eve or not only on how they're the same, but crucially on the ways that they're different. So verses 24 and 25 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, it's not my intention to offend or hurt anyone this morning, but in love, I want to share some things with you that I believe Scripture says. Scripture says that God made human beings to be gendered. That is, he made them to be male and he made them to be female. Man and woman. And the Bible says he called that very good. Scripture teaches here in Genesis and throughout the rest of the Bible that sexual union or becoming one flesh is to be reserved for one man and one woman within the context of marriage. That's not what I say. That's what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that this type of marriage is not the only or even the primary way that human beings are to relate to each other. 
We just said that. But it is an essential type of relationship that provides good, healthy boundaries and particularly reflects something of the image of God. And with that in mind, I want to look at one final way that we relate like God that can be clearly seen in the context of marriage because we relate in equity and diversity. Talking about the fact that Eve was formed from one of Adam's ribs, the Bible commentator Matthew Henry says that she was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him and under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. That's how that's supposed to work. And I agree with him. In the creation narrative, Eve is pictured as Adam's equal. God says she is Adam's helper, but there is no implication of inferiority. She's his co-worker. Elsewhere in scripture, God the Spirit is also referred to as our helper. But he is most certainly not lesser than us, is he? And neither are women lesser than men. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us and works with us, but he is never less than us. And the same is true of Eve in her relationship to her husband. Husband and wife are co-equal, but that does not mean they are exactly the same. They are of the same substance, yes, but they're not carbon copies of one another. They are different in gender. God made them male and female. They have different roles and responsibilities. They have different characters and personalities. They are equal and yet they are diverse. And this is the beautiful reflection of our awesome God. Do you know that? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all co-equal. They are all equally and fully God. They share the same substance, and yet they are three separate persons, each with his own role and responsibilities. Yeah, that's hard to get your head around. But hey, we've got a living picture of how that works. And those differences in God don't lead to friction and conflict. Instead, they perfectly complement one another. And this is how our marriages and indeed all of our relationships as men and women should be. As we fully embrace our God-given similarities and differences and strive to complement one another as we share in God's image. The final thing I want to highlight is that, and this really is the good news, we will be recreated in God's image. If only Genesis had ended at chapter 2, because in chapter 3 it all goes wrong. Man and women created in the image of God choose to rebel against their creator. It wasn't enough for them to represent God, they wanted to be independent of him, and in that sense they wanted to be their own gods. Sin enters the world and permeates and penetrates every facet of humanity. And it twists and distorts the image of God in us into evil, self-serving ugliness. That's what it does. Husbands who abuse their wives, wives who try to rule over their husbands, children who rebel against their parents, and men and women who willfully deny and ignore the value, dignity, and worth inherent in each other leading them to commit fouler and fouler acts of evil upon one another. I've got to tell you, it's a pitiful perversion of God's 
intended reflection. But even though God's image has been distorted, it is not lost. It can still be seen in the world. That's why bad people can do good things. That's why there's still love and kindness and generosity in the world. Because human beings can't help but reflect, albeit in a marred and blemished way, the image of the beautiful God who created them. Even so, the bad news is humanity is broken. Like funhouse mirrors, we're doomed to reflect a hideous and grotesque image of God, distorted by our sin. And worse still, we are helpless to do anything about it. Thank God, then, that he has not left us to our own devices. He has a rescue plan to restore his image in us, and by extension, our relationship with one another and with him. God's plan to restore his image in us began when he once more reached down from heaven and got his hands dirty. Not by creating another man in his image, but instead by humbling himself and taking on the likeness of man himself. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas time, right? That little baby Jesus in the manger was actually God the Son literally in the flesh. The incarnation, God, took on flesh, became like us. And because he was God, Jesus was uniquely able to live his entire life perfectly reflecting the image of God, day in and day out, without it ever being distorted by sin. He represented God because he literally carried the rule and reign of God with him wherever he went. He ruled like God. He exercised his God-given authority over sickness, over death, over demons, over the whole of creation. And he related like God, constantly speaking to and hearing from God the Father and God the Spirit and surrounding himself with community. If I could have the worship team up, I'm going to bring this thing into land. The even crazier thing is, just as Jesus perfectly represented God to us, he was also able to perfectly represent us to God. So that everything he did, he did in our place. And unlike each and every other human being in all of history, the whole of Jesus' life was lived in, good, in obedience to God the Father. Even up to the point where he laid down his life, his sinless life, and was nailed to a cross and killed by those in whose likeness he had come. And he did that so he could offer us the opportunity to be recreated in his image and his likeness instead. And on the third day, God raised Jesus to new life, cementing his sinless, undistorted likeness and image in Jesus for eternity, and holding out the hope that one day everyone who believes and confesses that Jesus is Lord will be resurrected from death and recreated by receiving God's pure and undistorted image stamped on them anew, completely free from sin and all the sorrow that it brings. So I want to say this, until then, we are called to walk with Jesus day by day as we are being transformed more and more into his likeness. And since he is the very image of the invisible God, that means we are being restored more and more 
into the true image, image of God with every day. And that should fill us with confidence to look forward to that day when we will be completely like him. Perfectly representing God to one another, giving him the glory, praise and worship and honour that he so rightfully enjoys, uh, deserves and enjoying him forever as he rejoices and sings over us for eternity. Amen? I just ask you to stand. We're going to worship in a moment. Remember earlier when I asked you what you thought you're worth? I want to tell you this. Jesus thought you were worth dying for. Maybe you know that already this morning, but let that wash over you again. Maybe you don't know that. I don't know. Let me tell you, Jesus thought you were worth dying for. He laid down his life for you. That's that's an incalculable worth that he's invested in you. Don't you want to know why? So if you don't know Jesus, but you do want to know why, why don't you speak to someone, speak to me, and ask. And if you do know Jesus, maybe ask him why again this morning. Because it's his good pleasure to share his joy and his passion over us. And it helps us, it builds us up, helps us to know that to God, we are incalculably valuable. Not through anything that we've done, but because he decides that that's the case. So conversely, it doesn't mean what you've done wrong doesn't negate that, doesn't break that. I want us to respond in praise and worship, but I am here to have a conversation with anyone who wants to pick apart anything they've heard this morning or has been stirred by anything this morning. But let's give glory to God this morning. We are made in his image and our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is an opportunity to do that in community. This is a special moment on Sunday morning as church family get to display the likeness of God to one another and reflect that back to him. I'm going to pray and I'm going to hand over to these guys. King Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you laid down your life for us. Thank you that you looked at dust on the ground and thought, I'm going to make man and woman. Thank you that you decided to invest so much into us. Thank you that each one of us standing here this morning is your child and someone that you have chosen to be in your family, someone you have chosen to give dignity and value and worth to. So I pray, release us from anything that might hinder us from worshipping you with our full selves this morning and receive all the glory and all the praise and all the adoration that you deserve, almighty God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, we worship you this morning, and we give you everything. Amen.